0: You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Second Timothy 3, that's where we're going to start. And uh, two verses that we've actually looked at it, uh, already a few times uh, here on Wednesday nights. We're going to be reviewing those. And uh, just giving you a few thoughts, in, in some ways kind of finishing up um, the last service that we, the last message we were in. Um, on our Wednesday night series, we're calling it, I'm calling it Why Baptist? And it's really a doctrinal study. It's just to study some of the basic Bible doctrines that Baptists have, have, have been distinguished by traditionally. And, um, and, and I'm not, these aren't Baptist doctrines, these are Bible doctrines. And that's what we believe. We are Baptists, not, that label is not something that we, we, uh, we accept or that we embrace because it's a denomination. That label means something doctrinally. That's, that's why we embrace it. And I, I read a, a couple of weeks ago, uh, the last time we were in this series on Wednesday nights, um, somebody had said, you become a Christian by believing in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you become a Baptist by believing the rest of the Bible. And uh, I love the way that they, they said that. I think it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but I, it's true for me, and I'm grateful uh, for that. So the last time, I, and I'm not going to show you the slide tonight, um, we, I showed you the acronym of the word Baptist, and, and it listed out some of the the primary doctrines. And, and that first one that we talked about uh, was biblical authority. Uh, the B for Baptist, biblical authority, is where we started and just, as a, just to clarify, when I, when I show those uh, doctrines, um, it's not an exhaustive li- list of all of our core doctrines. Uh, there are a lot of things that we believe that wouldn't necessarily be covered in that list. Um, all Bible doctrine is essential, we believe. Um, but there are some that, though, if they weren't true, would impact us more greatly than others would. So if, if you view uh, your, your doctrinal beliefs like a web, and it's all connected, Um, there are some core doctrines in the middle of the web that if they were removed would affect so many other things. There are some as you get further out from the center of the web that if they weren't there, it wouldn't affect as much. Does it mean they're not important? No. But there are some that are at the core. For example, if God doesn't exist, we're in big trouble, and uh, when I started talking about the first point on the list, which was biblical authority, I talked about how we make a presupposition that God is and he is not silent. Uh, I think uh, Louis, uh, Francis Schaeffer is the first one that came up with that phrase, but God is a communicating God. And we, we presuppose and we gladly uh, admit that we presuppose that God exists and because there's plenty of evidence that points to a designer And uh, we take the existence of God by faith also because the Bible teaches it. In the beginning, God, there's a presupposition. And if the Bible presupposes that God exists, I suppose that's good enough for me too. You know, it seems like there's a, a lot, that's a lot more reasonable supposition than what some people believe that they presuppose that matter has already always existed in the universe and that matter turned into the universe as we know it. That's a pretty big leap of faith as well. Where did that matter come from? You know, so everybody that has, even those with an empirical mindset, a mindset that says you have to prove everything, if you can't observe it, then it it can't be fact, they jump to some conclusions conclusions themselves. They, they, They take some steps of faith as well, just like we do. The point, though, of this study is not to have an exhaustive list at every core doctrine, or the most important doctrines, although what we'll look at, every one of these are important. It's really, though, to take a simple look at some of the doctrines that Baptists have uniquely held. Because, uh, admittedly so, throughout history, uh, there, there have been other religions, and, and there have been denominations that don't hold to some of the things that Baptists have traditionally held to. And and so that's part of the reason we're taking it the direction we are and I, I think it's fitting, though, that the first one we've looked at is about God's Word. If you think about building a house, uh, then everything is established on the foundation. And, and so for us to have an understanding of God's Word, or at least uh, to, to know where we stand, it's, it's kind of like starting out with a strong foundation. Because everything else that we talk about when it comes to, to doctrine is from God's Word. And so if there's a shaky foundation, then, then, and I'll talk about this more, if there's a shaky foundation, then, then we don't firmly then probably believe as strongly as on the other areas or in the other areas as we should. What we believe about God's word colors everything else. And so last time we discussed the inspiration of scripture and God through special revelation has revealed detailed information about himself through the definite words of scripture that's the idea behind inspiration. And we believe that the primary way God speaks to his people now is in written form through the pages of the Bible. It used to be that God would speak to individuals or he would speak to prophets and, and he would speak. I don't, know, I don't know how it worked. I'm sure in some, it had to be audible in some way. And God, I'm not sure. I wasn't there to, to see how he did it. But, he, but it does say God would say this. ...to the prophets, and then the prophets would go and give that word to God's people. Well, now we believe that God primarily speaks through this word, the written word, the Bible, the Holy Scriptures. And so, if this is God's revelation of himself to people, then we need to understand the attributes of Scripture... If this is God's revelation of himself to us, it's good for us to know what we believe about it. We, we ought to know what we believe about it. There are certain characteristics about the Bible that it claims about itself that, that we should know. And that the first one that we talked about is that God's word is inspired. And we talked about that already a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago now. But we believe the Old and the New Testament scriptures are the, are the inspired word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 look at it it says all scripture is given by what's the word inspiration. inspiration of god and is profitable for doctrine for reproof for correction for instruction in righteousness that the man of god may be perfect thoroughly furnished unto all good works the word inspired it's a it's a breathing term god breathed out the words of scripture though they were given by the breathing out of god and not only that what came from god Is what was written down. And and we need to understand that we that it's not just, well, God breathed it out. No, when God breathed it out, it was written down as he wanted it to be. Look over in 2 Peter chapter 2. Sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter 1. And we'll we're gonna go back and forth probably between these two verses a few times tonight and then and look at a few others but second peter chapter 1 it says in verse 19 we have also a more sure word of prophecy And I love those verses because, I mean, Peter's giving the account of of him seeing the glory of God in a way that very few ever had. In verses 17 and 18, he's talking about this voice that came from heaven that he heard when he was on the mountain with Jesus Christ. He said it was amazing. But he says, but we have a more sure word of prophecy. We have the word of God that he he gave to human authors. They wrote it down as he wanted it to. And it's more sure. And it's something that you need to place your trust in. That's what Peter's telling us. So the words came from God. So inspiration, again, is what we're talking about. The words came from God, but he used qualified men to write them down. Now, I want to be clear that we don't necessarily believe in a uh, at least uh, I don't think we ought to believe in a dictation view that, that men had no say in what was written and they were just simply dictating what God told them to in his word. It doesn't take much reading to see the personalities of the writers come through. Uh, the, these human authors, sh- sure, they were, they were giving God's word as he gave it to them. They were writing it down, uh, but their personality comes through. So some say, well, if we don't believe in the dictation view, then we can't believe God inspired every word that he only gave ideas and men wrote them down how or wrote them how they wanted to. But what we, that's, that's not what we believe. We, if God, listen, if God can inspire men to write his word in the first place, then he can also allow the personality of the human author to come through and be shown in the way that it's written. He can give the words, and he can filter it through the personality of the writers, and it's perfectly fine. Bible scholars call that confluence, or it's like a convergence or a unity that comes together. It means that God's words and ideas came across, but men's personalities also are seen, and their writing styles also come through. Make no mistake, though, God's word originated with God, but he used men to bring it about. Some call this, it, this is something interesting, and I hadn't heard it very much just in some of my study. I, I came across this. Some call it the middle knowledge of God. Meaning that uh, it means that God not only knows everything that could happen, um, and, and it's not that, and God also not just doesn't, he doesn't just know what could happen. He doesn't just know what will happen. He also knows what any person that he creates would freely do under certain circumstances in which God might place him. And you say, well, that sounds a little bit strange. No, it's simply admitting that God's omniscient and he knows what people will do if they're placed in a certain circumstance. I mean, think about it. He knew that Pharaoh would not freely let the people go. So what does it say? I just read this in my Bible. Um, in, in Exodus this week, I just started my Bible reading over last week and almost through the book of Exodus as I was reading about it, it just it stood out to me again. It says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And every time I read it, I'm like, oh man, that's striking that, that God would do that. And it just doesn't seem, no, no, God knew that Pharaoh was not going to let the people go. He, he knew what Pharaoh was going to do. And it's, under, it's important that, that we understand God doesn't make choices for people. Uh, he doesn't force choices on us. He, we still have the free choice, but he's God. He knows what we're going to choose. And he knew that, that, that Pharaoh would not let the people go. Uh, he knew that Pilate would allow the Jews to crucify Jesus. He knew that Judas would be the one to betray Jesus for silver he knew that David, when he was writing the book of Psalms, which um, David wrote many of the Psalms, but he knew that there would be times that David would be frustrated and even angry about his enemies. Because there are some times I read the book of Psalms and in my flesh, I'm like, yeah, David, kill the enemies. He's ex- I mean, he wants it to happen. Thank you, Kina. Me and Kena, there are only carnal two people in the room tonight. He knew that David would have those feelings at times. He knew that Paul, I mean, you read some of the letters uh, that Paul wrote, and you get down to the end of it, and Paul's giving instructions to make sure you bring my cloak, and make sure you do this, and do this and that, and it doesn't, it just kind of makes you wonder like, why is that included? Well, God, God allowed the human authors to come through, but at the same time, he, his word was coming through. Uh, and however it happened, God allowed his inspiration to combine with the personalities of the writers, and, and the word of God was produced. God knew because he knows that middle knowledge of God that some men call it. He knows what men would faithfully write his word. And he chose those men to do it. He also knew the parts that they would add that would reflect who they are. And, and this, is not ta- this is not about salvation. He's not making the choice for somebody uh, to be saved or not. And he's not giving some no choice to be saved. That's not what I'm saying. But he's an omniscient God. He knows the choices we're going to make. I mean, he sees the future. He knows those things. And, and the truth is, he was okay with these things coming through from the human writers and their personality and styles. And there are some things about the process, though, we have to admit that we don't understand. I don't know how this worked. I, I don't get it all. I, and, but you know what? It's okay because I just trust that with God, all things are possible and, and I am a limited human being. I don't have to understand it all. I just know that God went to great lengths to make sure that we have his word. What we need to accept is that this book is inspired by God. He used human beings to bring it, to record it. And sometimes with their personalities and styles, it came through. But simply put, the words of Scripture came directly from God and were put down on the page. And what originated with God became the written word of God that we have now in our hands. Jesus Christ himself defines Scripture as every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. I mean, he gave credence ...to the authority of scripture. He says, this is God's word. These are God's words. And if they're God's words, whether or not we understand how he gave them, ...it doesn't change the fact that if they're God's words, they carry his authority... We also believe in verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal inspiration it applies to every single word in the Bible. God didn't reveal himself through intangible concepts. He didn't tell Paul, okay, I want you to talk about atonement in this chapter or redemption in this chapter and, you know, just say it how you want to and then send me, a, send me the first draft and I'll check it. I'll check it. No, no, he was, dict- he was not dictating. He was telling them, What to write it with the words, not just the concepts. You say, well, that doesn't really seem to jive with their personalities and stuff. Hey, again, God, God, with God, anything's possible. And if He wanted it to be done this way, He could. And who am I to question how He did it? Uh, He revealed Himself through words and specific words and he also it's a plenary inspiration which means that there's no text or scripture any more or less inspired than any other text of scripture so we don't believe that well certain parts of the, this book are inspired but this part over here is not no it's not partially inspired it's equally inspired all scripture is given by inspiration of god so when scripture speaks, God speaks, not just part of it, all of it. And, and you say, well, what, again, what about the parts that reflect the authors? Well, it says all scripture. And I just, we just need to trust God's sovereignty. And you say, well, why do you keep going back to that? Because it's an issue for some people. They have a tough time understanding, you know, how God could give every word, but the human author comes through. And it's a miracle. It's a miracle that God would reveal himself to man. I, we just need to accept that. It's a miracle that mankind could write down the words of God. It's a miracle that, that God would convey his words through human authors. It's a miracle that his words have been preserved for us. And we may not be able to explain how it all works, but by faith, we can accept that God worked in a special way so that we could have his inspired word, inspiration. God's word, is, that's the first attribute is God's word is inspired. The second one is that I'm going to, talk about tonight is that God's word is inerrant and inerrancy deals with scriptures recording so God's word as recorded by human authors is without any mixture of error so inspiration is how God gave it to the human authors Um, inerrancy points to the fact that as they wrote it down it was without error it was not there was no mixture of error look over at Hebrews chapter 6 Hebrews chapter 6, we'll look at a few verses here. This is the, one of the characteristics of God. Good, good for us to understand. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. Back to the left from Peter. Between 2 between Timothy and 2 uh, Peter from where, where we were. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. It says that by two immutable things in which it was impossible... For God to lie, we might have a strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. He's talking about promises, and he, uh, the promises of God, the promise to Abraham. But the phrase that I want you to point out is in the middle of this, uh, the writer says that it is impossible for God to lie. God is... God's word is true, God cannot lie, he's always truthful, he he cannot be anything but truthful, And and that's important for us to understand that if he can't speak falsely, that that means that we should believe that God so worked in scripture's inspiration that there weren't mistakes. If this came from God, and God cannot lie, then we have to assume then his word is inerrant, and that's how Jesus treated the Bible. If I'd referenced this a couple weeks ago in John chapter 10 verse 35, Jesus says that scripture cannot be broken. It's, it's inerrant. It, it, it's absolute. That's Jesus' testimony of scripture. We looked at a lot of other verses from the Old and the New Testaments, uh, claiming that the Old Testament and New Testament scriptures are God's words and vice versa. And if they're inspired, they're from God and they can, and He cannot lie. Therefore, the Bible claims its own inerrancy. And this doctrine, it matters because if we can't trust the accuracy of the source, it leaves everything else up for debate. If we can't trust the accuracy of the source, it leaves other things up for debate. So, for instance, um, if someone, let's just say that, I mean, uh, John F. Kennedy, we all know he was killed, I believe, in November of 1963. How many of you uh, were alive when it happened? Okay, how many of you remember where you were when it happened? Got a few that do. Okay, so no, November, anybody remember? 1963, okay. Just 1963, we'll say that. Um, so let's say that a book comes out. There's, of course, there's all kinds of controversy when it comes to John F. Kennedy's assassination. And there's all kinds of, I actually knew someone. He, re, he passed away about 10 years ago, but I actually knew someone that was sitting on the grassy knoll as a teenager. And he has his own account of where the shots came from. And it's not what everybody else says. Um, and I believe him. He was a teenager. So um, so, uh, so this book comes out and this person um, that has never released this information before comes out and says, I know what happened. I was there. And they were on the grassy knoll the day that um, JFK was killed in the motorcade. And they, they claim they can prove... Um, who who shot him and from where and they give all these details and they give this new information uh, it seems to really bring all the pieces of the puzzle together and the book skyrockets to the top of the bestsellers list and but, but after, and so you read the book and you're engaged the whole time and you can't put it down and it's, it's amazing. But after reading the book, you go to the inside, to the dust jacket and you read the author's bio and everything checks out. But one little detail stands out to you as you read it and it says that this author that wrote the book was born in 1960. So he was there that day, but he was three years old. Does that change a little bit of the of the uh, credence that you put into what he wrote in that book? Absolutely. I mean, I know some very um, well learned and aware three year olds, but I'm not sure that I would put a lot of take, give a lot of credit to a three year old's account of what happened on a day like that. See, it, it's hard to trust the contents if you can't trust the source. I mean, if if you said I would like a cup of water, and I I brought you a cup of water and said, "All right, here you go," and you say, "Thank you," and you say, "Okay, where'd you get it?" And I said, "I just found it. It was just on the side of the road." Said, "But it smells fine." Say, and you ask, "Well, have you taken a drink of it yet?" And I say, "Well, no, but it looks fine. I don't see anything floating in it. You should be fine. Would you drink it?" Some of you, are. if you're thirsty enough, you don't care. Most of the rational people in this room would say, no, I wouldn't drink that water. Why? Because you don't know where it came from. And it's hard to trust the contents if you don't know the source. That's the point. And if we can't trust the inerrancy of God's word, it casts doubt on Everything. And in the history of Christianity, it's always been enough for God's people to affirm that Scripture is true. But now, even some Christians are trying to get away from the word inerrant. The Word of God is in question now. And it, which means, I think, that we ought to embrace a word like inerrant. Because if Scripture has mistakes um first how are we going to trust it for the most important things but second i mean how are we going to have confidence um in convincing somebody else that god's word is inerrant if we don't believe it's inerrant see so but how do we deal with the difficult things in the bible um i knew you would ask that question well rather than assume something that i can't explain means well none of it's true maybe i should assume that i have limited understanding. See, I think that's what people are doing these days. They throw the baby out with the bathwater. They say, well, I can't reconcile these two verses, and it just seems like a contradiction, or I can't reconcile this thought, and that just seems like a really hard thing to say, and I can't really put my, wrap my mind around that, so, okay, it's, it's just all, it's all gone. I mean, I throw all of it out. Uh, no, I, I, took, uh, I took calculus in high school. Trust me. There were plenty of things that I didn't understand, but it, it didn't, but in my mind, I didn't throw my calculus book away. I kept it because I knew I was going to need it for every, for, I mean, all three times I took the class, I was going to need that book. I'm just, just kidding. You know, we should assume the problem is not God's word. It's likely either our ignorance or bad interpretation on our part, or maybe God just doesn't want us to know. You know, there are plenty of things mentioned that aren't explained to us. And he doesn't owe us an explanation. Um, the fact that he would reveal as much as he does to us is a miracle and a blessing. He doesn't owe us any of that. But it, just because we don't understand it or we have a bad interpretation or we're ignorant or it's a mystery, it doesn't mean it's not true. There are a lot of things on this planet happening right now that I don't know about. doesn't mean it's not tr- true and happening. You know, we, we just may not understand and what the doubters are doing then is they open up the possibility for people to say, well, I believe that if, if they question the, errant, the inerrancy of scripture, then they, they, they look at a passage that seems hard or a passage that they don't want to submit to. And they say, well, I don't believe that one. So I'm tossing that one out because I, and really what they want, don't want to do is submit. That's really the, the question. Well, but if we, So we have to be careful not to put people in the position where they think it's okay to do that. We, this is not a buffet. I mean, you don't get to just pick and choose the parts of it that you want to apply to your life. I mean, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Therefore, it's all inerrant because he cannot lie. He's perfect. And therefore, I have to receive and accept all of it, whether or not I understand it or whether or not it's a hard teaching. But who's to judge what to accept and what to reject? Every word of God is pure. If that's the case, we should believe it's all true and that it all matters. And we should therefore, rather than just throw it out, maybe we should decide to dig in. Maybe we should decide to try to understand it. And maybe we, we, we should get better at applying principles of hermeneutics, which is correct interpretation, which, by the way, every, every believer Um, should study hermeneutics so that you can properly interpret god's word because misinterpretation of god's word has led to a lot of bad teaching so approach the scripture with this understanding okay god doesn't lie everything in this book matters it's all equally inspired and without error that's how we should approach it so the bible's inspired the bible's inherent and the bible is infallible And this one's hard to to distinguish between inerrant. It's very close to inerrancy. Inerrancy is the thing itself. So what I would call, I would say about the Bible is that this book is inerrant. It's without any mixture of error. The Bible's wholly true. Infallibility refers to how the, is to the effect that the Bible has on me. So inerrant means without error in its recordings. Infallible means without error in its teaching and effect. So this object is inerrant and its effect on me is infallible, meaning this is this is what I need to be what I'm supposed to be. That's good. See, because the Bible is true, therefore it, it, it never deceives me. It never misleads me. The effect it has on me is always positive and always helpful. And I'm going to go back to the textbook idea that there's a school textbook. It's the ultimate authority on a subject, we'll say, like fractions, okay? Because I can understand fractions better than calculus, so that's my new example. So everyone agrees that, that this book that you have on fractions is the best book out there. It's the best resource for understanding fractions. So if you study it, then... Okay, so, okay, so again, so, and I know it's just an illustration. We would never say this about a textbook... But let's say then, let's, uh, let's say that that textbook would be inerrant. Okay, that we're saying that, that, that the object, the book itself, is without any errors. And I suppose that's, that's possible for a textbook if it's been edited and proofed enough that there wouldn't be any errors. And let's say that it's the ultimate authority on fractions. So then let's say then I study that textbook and I go in and I take a test on fractions and I get an, an 85%, which some of you, for fractions, it's not a bad grade, okay? Well, so would I then go back to my classroom and or to my my house and take that book and throw it out in the garbage because I didn't get 100%? No, there's nothing wrong with the book itself. The problem lies with me. The effect that that book should have had on me if I had a Really studied like I should have was it could have only been helpful. The problem was that I I have limitations. See the that's that's Bible infallibility. That's the idea is that it's inerrant in itself, but its effect is also free from error. It's only ever good for me. It's it's only ever helpful for me, which leads to Second Timothy three, which is what we read at the beginning. That all, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Verse 17 says that the man of God may be what? Perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Kena's so excited, he just jumped ahead to the next word. Perfect. The word is perfect. I, I, I love the, Kena's approach to life. It's like, um, I, if I'm going to make a mistake, everyone's going to know it. So, I'm going to get you a t-shirt. <laughs> Rather than those who sit in the back and just say something real quiet to themselves, I appreciate that, he, that he's involved and engaged. I'm thankful. All right. The Bible doesn't contain errors, and therefore it can't have anything but a perfect effect on our lives. That's infallibility. Is it possible for us to misunderstand or misinterpret something? Yeah, absolutely. Of course it is. There are plenty of things that we have to consider in order to interpret the meaning of God's word accurately. And a lot of people, you know, they, they, they fail to see some of the nuances and They might fail to understand that certain books are historical writings, and some are poetic writings, and there's some figurative language, and there's the use of simile or symbols and allegory, and there's hyperbole, which is exaggeration, and there's uh, parables, and all those things. I mean, we interpret this like we would any other document, I mean, just historical, grammatical, we, we interpret it like any other document. Uh, But we may take some of those things wrong. We may not understand, well, that verse right there was supposed to be an allegory. And and, and Jesus Christ wasn't saying I'm supposed to hate my family. He's simply saying that I'm supposed to love God so much that it makes my love for everything else look like hate. That's figurative language. He's not telling me to literally hate my family. Although if you have siblings as a child, that verse was probably one of your favorites. (laughs) So, I mean, there's some things that we have to understand while we read it and interpret it correctly. For example, I mean, think about this. The book of Job, it accurately records the words of God, which are authority, but it also has the words. Uh, who else's words are listed in the book of Job? Who, else, who else's words? Uh, his, friends. his friends. Okay, you've got his friends. You've got who? You've got Job himself. You've got Job's wife. You even have the words of Satan, right? So some of the statements in the book of Job are are ungodly or in direct contradiction to other statements in Scripture. That doesn't mean the Bible has errors. It simply means that it accurately recorded what people were saying. It's, it's all inspired. It was all recorded accurately, but there may be statements that aren't necessarily true in and of themselves because somebody said it and they were wrong. So should I take what Satan said as authoritative in the book of Job? Should I take what Satan said in the book of Genesis chapter 3 when he lied to Eve? Should I take his words as being authoritative? No. The words are inspired, but they may not be authoritative and they may not be reflective of God. And it's important for us to know those kinds of things as we read God's word. Um, I mean, cults or groups that some will conveniently um, overlook or ignorantly sometimes overlook. There's some very important distinctions and they'll establish heretical doctrinal teachings on things that they take out of context or twist for their own meaning. That doesn't make the Bible fallible. It makes us fallible. And that we're not seeing things as clearly as we ought to, and we're not interpreting things maybe as clearly as we should. We're good. Folks, we are good at giving ourselves the benefit of the doubt, aren't we? I'm very good at making excuses for myself and and, and not questioning my own motives while I might question somebody else's. I assume my motives are right. I assume I have the accurate opinion. But listen, I need to take that mindset and transfer it to God's word and always give God's word the benefit of the doubt. When it comes to this book, it doesn't contain error. It's not going to mislead me in its teaching. And, and I have to study it so that, I don't under, so that if I don't understand something, then, then I'll either learn it or just accept by faith that I don't have all the information I need. I need to give the Bible the benefit of the doubt. And we live in a culture that doesn't give the Bible the benefit of the doubt. We live in a culture that throws it all out because of something they may not understand. Folks, the Bible is inspired, the Bible is inerrant, and the Bible is infallible. Therefore, the Bible is our final authority. And that authority, it comes a result of its nature. It's inspired, infallible, and inerrant, and that means it's breathed out by God, inerrant, and that whatever it records is accurate without error, and that it's infallible, and that it cannot deceive me or mislead me in what it teaches. It can only help me. The conclusion is that the Holy Scripture is the ultimate standard of truth. Right. Amen. John In John 10, 17, 17, Jesus Christ said, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. Notice that, that when Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ was saying that, it was a prayer to his father. When he was saying that, he doesn't say, thy word is true. In other words, he didn't apply, he didn't say that your word, God, father, your word is true. No, he said your word is truth. Meaning that your word doesn't submit itself to some higher standard of right or wrong and therefore it's true no your word is the highest standard of right or wrong and if Jesus Christ said that about God's word then I ought to operate like that in my life that this is God's word and it is not just true it is truth and therefore it is the highest standard for me in my thinking and my doctrine in my living if Jesus Christ believed it I ought to as well so why does that matter to me well in a world in which the the word of so many people can't be trusted. Well, isn't, aren't we seeing that being played out these days? There's so many, I'm just being honest, so much lying. You can't trust anything. You can't, I mean, you can't re- trust what a newspaper puts out anymore. You can't, I mean, you can't trust what the media puts out. You can't trust a news station. In a world in which the word of so many people can't be trusted we have uh, the, the word of somebody that can be trusted. And it, it undermines everything to not believe, to not be able to believe what someone else is saying. If, if, but if we believe this is God's inerrant, infallible, inspired word, then why would, why would we trust anything else by which to live our lives? You can't trust anything else. If this is from God and error-free, why is it not the thing I embrace the most? Why is it not that which I love the greatest? Why is it not that which I read most often? Why is it not that which I memorize with the most vigor and study with the most passion and meditate on with the most resolve and share with the world with the most excitement? If this is God's word in its truth and it's free from error, then what am I doing with it? I mean, either I don't really believe it or I'm so complacent that I've lost sight of the one source of, uh, in my life that actually provides the answer to all my problems. God's inspired, infallible, inerrant word. And I, One thing I've noticed recently, we'll wrap it up, is there's this trend among younger people. I don't know if you'd call it millennials or, or Generation Z, Gen Z, whoever it is. But I, I've noticed this a lot, is that when you go and, and somebody's serving you, I'm just going to use Starbucks as an illustration. Um, Where do we have? What's that? Oh, there he is up there. I'm sorry to do this to you. Um, Steven up there. So you go to Starbucks and you say, okay, I'd like a coffee. Boy, that's the wrong thing to say. Because then they're like, okay, um, would you like what size? And I'm like, little, big. Like they look at you like you don't you don't know what you're talking about because I don't. So what size would you like? Would you you like? I usually say okay, I'll take a Pike's Place, just black, please, because anything besides black coffee is not manly coffee. I'm sorry. Okay. Would you like me to leave room in that for cream or whatever? They start asking all these questions and I'm like I don't know. I just want a black coffee. And they say okay, um, what? You know they ask all these questions. They say all right, that will be eighteen (laughs) forty nine. Okay, sorry, Stephen. Um, for the small one, for the little one. Say, okay. And so I give them my, my card and they swipe it and it goes through barely because now my, my bank account's empty. <laughs> and they hand me back the card and what do they say now, everyone says? Say, all right, perfect. Have you noticed this? Perfect. And I'm thinking, perfect, you just robbed me first. <laughs> I mean, second. I mean, there's really no perfect cup of coffee. I'm sorry again, Stephen, up there. No perfect. What do you mean perfect? Why is it perfect? But I've noticed. I mean, everyone's throwing around the word perfect these days. And they you say instead of "you're welcome," they say "perfect." Maybe I'm the only one's notice, noticing that, or maybe I mean, no, they don't think I'm perfect. So, but they're using it all the time, and you know, and, it, and it's it's fine, but it's used so flippantly for everything these days. And yet it dawned on me just this week, there's actually, there's really nothing on planet earth that's perfect. I mean, there's no person, no human being, there's no, there's no structure, there, there's no animal, there's no event, nothing is perfect except for one thing, and that is the word of God. So literally, you have, there's nothing perfect on planet earth except for this book right here. That should change the way we view God's word. I, I mean, I don't. We don't get a glimpse into heaven very often. I, when I'm listening to congregational singing, I, I often think about heaven. And I think, well, it's going to sound. I mean, imagine all the throngs of people singing that song, uh, in heaven. I can't wait. It's a little glimpse of heaven. Um, but I actually have something perfect that I can hold in my hands. This is a glimpse into eternity. It's perfect. It's God's inspired, inerrant, infallible, preserved word for me. It's perfect. And yet, sometimes we leave it on our dashboard between Sunday to, from Sunday to Sunday. Or it sits on our shelf all week and we don't ever open it. it we don't take, take care of it very much. We don't memorize it or read it or meditate on it or share it with the world. And yet, it's perfect. Nobody, if they, if they don't have a Bible, they don't have anything perfect. But we do. And what are we doing with it? Let's, it's not flippant perfect throw it out there whenever we want to no this really is perfect every time you read it you can say perfect every time you open it perfect every time you hear it preached i mean not the message <laughs> not the message but the word it's perfect and it overcomes all of my faults i mean every time you hear it spoken perfect this is perfect and you can hold it in your hands don't take it for granted it's time for us to maybe reevaluate how important God's perfect word is for us. We've you've had about a week, five days, 2021. Has God's perfect word in your life has its role changed at all? Are we still kind of in the old habits we were? Or has it taken on a new role, a new meaning? Maybe it should from starting from tonight here on out. God's perfect word, it should change us. It can change us. If we'll give it the hearing it deserves, let's stand together. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We will have a verse of invitation tonight. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.